welcome fellow travelers on the Camino de la Experiencia Humana, the road of human experience. I'm Chris Brock, and this is Conversations on Living, a podcast all about how to play the game of life, how to find our place in the universe, and perhaps along the way, discover some peace, happiness, and contentment. Now, sometime in the 1600s, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote the words, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Indeed, you could argue that if we could collectively and objectively face the impact of our runaway egos, that is, things like greed, division, inequality, war, climate change, destruction and exploitation of the natural world, and so on, we might have avoided many of the global crises we now face. But as Pascal observed, we are just too distracted by the allure of all the things outside ourselves to be able to spend any time looking within ourselves. And this is something that Tom Cronin wants to change. Tom is a world-renowned meditation teacher, a transformational coach, and the founder of The Stillness Project, which aims to inspire a billion people to meditate. And he's also the producer of a new documentary film and an accompanying book called The Portal, which posits that all of man's problems could be solved if we could learn to meditate, to look inside ourselves, to become objectively and intentionally present and detached from our egos, and if this practice could be adopted globally. You can find out more about Tom and his work at www.tomcronin.com. That's T-O-M-C-R-O-N-I-N.com. You can learn about The Stillness Project at www.stillnessproject.com. And you can learn about his amazing documentary at www.entertheportal.com. That's a lot of www dots, but you can find all the links in the show notes at conversationsonliving.com. Before we get stuck into our conversation, a quick shout out to the guys at Headliner. I use their service to create the audiograms, that's those social media-sized graphics that feature audio clips of the podcast and moving waveforms, to promote this podcast. If you're on social media, you've probably seen them. And if you run your own podcast, I would definitely recommend Headliner. It is without a doubt the easiest and most powerful way to create those audiograms. Find it at www.headliner.app. Talking of social media, you can find the podcast on Instagram. It's at Conversations on Living. And there's a Facebook group where you're more than welcome to come along and share your thoughts about what you've heard today. Just search for Conversations on Living and join the conversation. And while we're at it, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to Conversations on Living wherever you get your podcasts. And now, without any more jibber-jabber from me, here's that conversation with the very inspiring and very accomplished Tom Cronin. So Tom, thank you so much for, um, for joining me on the podcast. So you're in Sydney at the moment and uh, we're on other sides of the world and uh, brought together by technology, which is quite a, a miraculous thing. And um, you're on a kind of mission to bring stillness to um, a billion people, um, uh, which is quite an ambitious goal, I think. And uh, quite, uh, it's a story I'd quite like to dig into, but maybe you could start off by telling us a bit about your story and how you got into, well, where stillness came from, for you anyway. Mm. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Um, feeling really honoured to be invited along today. And stillness did play a big part of my life uh, at, at a very important time in my life it was at very much a crisis point and uh, you know before that I had very very little stillness in my life I was a, on a trading room floor in finance 
So if anyone has uh, seen Wolf of Wall Street or read the book, they'll have a very clear vision of what my life was like. It was very, very similar to what Jordan Belfort's world was like back then. It was uh, 1987. He started his career. It's the same year I started my career. I was 19 years old, took a year off backpacking around the world, was about to go to university and had a few months to fill in after blowing most of my money backpacking and um, just applied for a bunch of jobs in the paper. And before long, I was in the middle of a trading room floor at 19 years old and given a six-figure salary, a corporate Amex card and a fancy sports car and told to go out and win clients' business. So it was like my light, my eyes had just sort of opened up to this incredibly exciting world that I didn't know existed. You know, I was supposed to do journalism at university and had three months to fill in to make some bucks. And it was just so exciting and so adrenaline-fueled and it was just really just something I'd never seen in my life. And so I, I, I found it very hard to walk away from it after the three months. You know, I was given a bonus and a pay rise. And um, it, it was something that I kept sort of saying to myself, oh, I really should just go to uni, but this is so exciting and there's so much money and it was just so fun. So I decided to defer for another year and I was going to leave at the end of that year. And then as that year unfolded and it got round to time to leave to go to university, then my pay rise and my bonus came through and it's just like oh my goodness this is so good so it was year after year this deference just kept happening for my uni degree and every year i just got bigger and bigger bonuses and bigger and bigger pay rises and they call it the golden handcuffs and that ended up being a 26 year career wow <laughs> now just to give some context to the story for the first 10 years of that career from the ages of 19 to 29 was reckless abandon to the nth degree, you know, you're young, you've got tons of money, there's a cultural disposition to extreme decadence and adventure. And yeah, you know, before long, you're doing all sorts of crazy things. And I'm not going to go into too much detail, but you know, you, you, you really are burning the candle at both ends. In the daytime, you just, it's on all day long, just adrenaline fueled trading on a massive trading room floor. And at nighttime, it's just, because my job by day was to clear business and do the transactions and nighttime was to actually win the business, which is going, going out to restaurants, wine bars, nightclubs to um, entertain the, the traders to, to um, develop a, a nice, strong relationship with them so that they would want to do business with you. And so that relationship building was basically in the late 80s and early 90s. It was unchecked. You could do anything you want almost. And so we, we would spend lots of money entertaining these guys. And so what happened over time was that I, I started to get these symptoms showing up, these sort of red flags were showing up in my body, which of course I had not the consciousness to identify them, but it was just years back, I can look back and go, oh, okay, that's what was happening. But at the time it was chronic insomnia, addictions, depression, agoraphobia, not so much agoraphobia at that point, but anxiety, panic attacks. I didn't even know what the panic attacks were. I didn't know I was depressed. All I knew that I would just get these waves of incapacitation where I would be curled up in a ball in the toilet cubicle at home on bed before work in the bathroom um, where I just literally couldn't breathe. I couldn't see. I'd get tingly arms and hands and um, my body would just limply feel like it was just collapsing and I wanted to just run into a closet and hide. But I kind of, that would pass and I'd just go back to work and I kept doing the same thing. But it really culminated in late uh, 90s, in 1996, actually, when I was 29, into a pretty much a full-blown nervous breakdown. And so at that point, what happened was 
uh, I had to take time off work. I was seeing psychiatrists, put on medication, uh, seeing doctors. Uh, I was having to register into the local hospital for suicide sort of uh, monitoring. Um, it was a pretty dark time. And interestingly, at that time, I developed agoraphobia. So I was sitting at home a lot because uh, there was just nowhere else to go. Agoraphobia is the inability to leave the house. Just going outside the house was too overwhelming. You get this huge fear of the uncertainty of what's out the front door. And it goes back to our tribal makeup where in the cave was safe, outside the cave was dangerous. So that's where yeah. agoraphobia stems from. And at that time, it's 1996. So I, there was, you know, there was no TV, like no Netflix. There was no internet. There was no apps. So you just watch a lot of free-to-air TV. And there was this story about a property developer and a documentary I was watching. So I was really fascinated by this person. And part of that story was about how he used meditation to, um, yeah, to help him with his success. And he was in a suit in a chair meditating. And they showed like literally just 20 seconds, this uh, image of him, how he meditated and he was doing the voiceover, but he was wearing, I clearly remember, it was just 26 years ago, he had a pinstripe suit, a blue pinstripe suit sitting in a chair. And I wore pinstripe suits and I sat in chairs and I was like, my goodness, like this is something that I, I need, I, I could do that. And so it was like this epiphany in this light bulb moment of what I needed to do in my life. And so that was the starting point into meditation. Fantastic. And I mean, were you put off by the kind of, uh, you, you talk about the pinstripe suit, but there's this, this whole kind of idea. I mean, it's, it's becoming less prevalent now, but the idea of, of meditation being something for kind of uh, new age folk who are into jostics and chanting and mm. um, hanging out in communes and that kind of thing. Were you, were you at all put off by it or had you not even considered it at this point? Yeah, you know, it's a funny thing because there, I didn't know anyone in my life at the time that meditated. I grew up on a farm and then next thing I'm a broker. So I'd never come across meditation. I had no exposure to it. But interestingly, as a kid, I had a very strong faith and a strong connection to Catholicism and, and the church. And, you know, I was an altar boy. And so you know, there was a lot of ceremony and ritual and the tradition, the meditation that I learned did, did have some of that in it. And it was, to me, it was kind of like everything that I'd been missing in my life, I was finding here in this spirituality and in this, and the tradition and the practice and the insight. So for me, that was really like magnetic. It was very charming. So I didn't feel it was very incongruent with my job because I went back to work and I worked there for 16 more years meditating yeah. on a daily basis. So there was this kind of like two worlds that I was living almost like it's a weird analogy, but like Art Ken in his tweed jacket, next thing he's in Lycra. So it was kind of like this weird world of doing retreats and meditating and then going on to a trading with four in a pinstripe suit and yeah. not discussing it or sharing that with anyone. I mean, were you still doing the partying and the, the sort of hardcore whining and dining at the time and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, interestingly, everything ha didn't have to do, but it did change because yeah. what drove me into those activities was the search for fulfillment. Like everyone, everyone on that planet right now is motivated in all their actions for one thing, and that's to be elevated and fulfilled, whether it's running a podcast, raising children, getting food from the grocery store, working at a tin cannery, going to Tibet to meditate. It's all to get fulfillment. And so the same thing's motivating every action. But what started to happen was uh, I was coming from a very low place. So therefore I was very motivated to go into action to find something that would elevate me out of that low place. 
But when I started meditating, I started to come from a very high place. It was just in, very, very quick that I started to feel quite elevated within myself. My whole biochemistry started to change. I started producing more oxytocin, more serotonin. I started to feel these sensations independent of any circumstances or action or acquisition. It was quite phenomenal. And it's, the way I describe it is it's happiness without a why. There was no why to my happiness. It was just was happiness. And so then what happens is because you're going into action from fulfillment, it's like it really gets you to question the need for the action. And so you start being much more proactive about the actions you're going into. And so with work, it was a little bit challenging because there was a status quo and there was a particular process that we went through to entertain clients. So I did have to find alternatives to that. And so rather than taking my clients out for benders till four in the morning, I would take them and their wives out to the ballet or the opera or take some clients to a surfing trip for a weekend away. And so it was about being really creative in elevating their lives, elevating my life and, and adding value in a way that was actually going to be you know, making everyone better at the same time. So that was really interesting and it really helped for my career as well. That's really fascinating because I think you mentioned it there. We're always looking for this, this why, you know, I'll, I'll be happy when this thing happens. Or I'll be happy when I make this much money. And I know from my own personal experience and having spoken to people on the podcast, that when you, when you focus on the fulfillment and the happiness first, then the other things actually start to happen uh, as a result of that, rather than the other way around. It's like this kind of paradoxical thing. And so, you know, you found it was beneficial for your career to actually start to engage with people in a different way that comes from this place of fulfillment and, and happiness, rather than try to force it with nights out and alcohol and, and the rest of it. Um, so, so what caused then the jump from the trading room floor to adopting a more kind of formal uh, professional practice of, of taking people to stillness and meditation? It's exactly what I was just talking about there, which is this, it's everything that changes when you have inner fulfillment because the, the, the foundation for your action will affect what the action is. Okay, so if you're coming from a foundation of lack, you go into action to fulfill that lack, to fill that hole. So you need to have an acquisition or an experience to try and fill that hole so that you don't have the hole and you start to feel elevated. But if there's no hole, then what motivates you into action? And this is actually a beautiful passage in the Bhagavad Gita where Arjuna is talking to Krishna and he says, but if I'm fulfilled, and action is to get fulfilled, why would I do any action? It's like, well, that's when you go into action to support and elevate the others because you actually start to experience others as yourself. And so we find this interesting phenomenon for people along this journey, which is why I do a lot of coaching with people in the conscious leadership space, is that we see people go through this process of seeker and that's that they're seeking and the whole planet ultimately is seeking for fulfillment. And it's like if you're in a dark room, you're clambering around looking for the light switch. You're looking, looking, looking. That's the first thing you do when you walk into a dark room is look for light, look for something to bring illumination to that experience. And we have a world living in, I'm generalizing, so it's not speaking to everyone. There's some very fulfilled people, no doubt, listening right now. But generalizing that we're coming generally from a space of lack because we're coded and conditioned to be in a space of lack because our capitalistic society works better when we have lack and therefore we will consume more because when we consume we get happiness so we're in this coded indoctrination of outcome oriented fulfillment that if i accumulate something if i acquire something if i have an experience then i'll be fulfilled so therefore i should keep consuming because then i'm going to be happier and 
what happens is when we suddenly through some process of practice or epiphany experience our own internal nature which is our this complete and utter fulfillment and wholeness then what happens is we get motivated to support and elevate others because our needs are fulfilled to some degree doesn't mean you don't enjoy things like having a nice dinner out getting a nice new car it just means that you're less motivated to fill a hole because it just isn't a hole and so therefore your action is taking that that golden chalice taking what you found within yourself and start sharing it with the world in some way shape or form so for me it just became undeniable of what I had to do what I wanted to do it was just that I'd found something that I just couldn't understand that not more of the people on the planet were doing this and that it had been here on this planet for 5,000 years and I was kind of like blown away I was like how the heck has this managed to sneak under the radar for 5,000 years and 7 billion people still struggling to find fulfillment when it's right here under our noses and so I just became very passionate about getting this out into the world in a mainstream way. Because it's interesting because you talk about you know we, we we kind of we're searching for the light and then we realize once we once we find it we realize that we have it within us and so we want to shine for other people as well but why do you think we find it as kind of humans so hard to turn our, our kind of focus onto ourselves and, and to find that fulfillment within ourselves why why are we so addicted to this kind of discontent this kind of constant seeking and this constant constant sense of lack and and um almost unhappiness almost it's almost like we're, we're kind of at the system the society that we built for ourselves feeds off it but also we're addicted to kind of giving it in a, in a way Look, it comes back to our very primal, basic animal nature. You know, we are just an evolved version of an animal. We are an animal. And so if, if you take a cow and that cow knows just innately, instinctively to eat green grass. Yeah. Okay. And it will just do it from the time it grows up all the way through. Now, if I put a sugar block on a table in the middle of a paddock, big fat sugar block, you know, two mm-hmm. foot square, uh, and I just put that in that paddock and because of our animal nature is to move the shortest and quickest route to pleasure, the shortest and quickest route to pleasure. What will happen is that cow will lick that sugar block all day long and get sick. Even though it knows that eating grass is better for it, but the sugar block is more pleasurable. And so you look at the traditions there's a fascinating correlation between the traditions where they have mindfully aware that the shortest route to pleasure isn't the best. And that there's some degree of depriving themselves proactively of pleasure for a more sustained internal experience of fulfillment. And that can be Ramadan, Tapas, Lent, Yom Kippur, spiritual sadhanas, spiritual practices, where there's some degree of self-discipline and control around that natural inclination to move towards pleasure so there's an awakening there there's a there's a degree of consciousness there as opposed to lacking in that degree of consciousness and awareness and just going well i'm just going to go and spend fifteen hundred dollars on some shopping this weekend because i worked really hard and i need to let off some steam and i'm going to have to work really hard next week because i just spent fifteen hundred dollars on some shopping and the fulfillment that i got from that shopping is going to wear off in about three days time so we're in this constant trap right without the consciousness to realize how coded and conditioned we are to be in that trap. And it's been said that it's a five-year-old kid will know the McDonald's arches before they know their surname. Yeah, it's pretty, 
pretty shocking, really, isn't it? It yeah. almost feels like we're hard coded for addiction in a way. Oh, we are, yeah. yeah. People have, our whole, uh, me included, so I'm not excluding us. We're all addicted. We're addicted to our egos. We're addicted to our body. We're addicted to pleasure. We're addicted to, I mean, Netflix, iPhone, uh, Instagram, ice cream, you name it. We're all addicted. It's funny you mentioned distracted. I mean, ego there is, is quite a big one because part of, for me at least, one of the, one of the um, things about I, I discovered with meditation, and I don't know if this was your experience as well, but was um, the whole kind of detachment from identity and letting go of ego as, as much as I could. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm terribly flawed at this because I, I, I meditate when I can. I'm not kind of a professional meditator or anything like this. But the whole idea of not having to be right all the time, the whole idea of letting stuff go because, you know, I'm, I'm attached to that and, and that kind of thing. That was quite a profound thing. And it, it seemed to me that stillness, and this is why I kind of reached out to you, stillness is a kind of state below ego if you like and it's almost like ego is our attachment to this this discontent in this world and this and and we'll, we'll talk about um the portal your film a little bit later on but um this whole idea that you know all of the modern world crises are man-made and a lot of it comes from ego it comes from greed and it comes from conflict and the desire to always I would say right. all. all come from all. ego yeah. um but ego isn't intrinsically a bad thing necessarily because you know it, it helps it guides us into who we are and and on our path in life but how can we stop being you know confusing who we are with our egos i mean was that was that a moment for you on your journey it's an always an ongoing journey um yeah. that velcro stripping away and separating and discriminating between what is ego and what is truth what is absolute nature what is fundamental essence what is divine quality so we can use analogies to try and get it in some context, because if we only have ego and we don't have access, we always have access. But if we were unaware of our true nature, our higher self, then we'll only operate from what I'm saying from ego. So, but to give it some context as an ideology, there's clouds in the sky and in the sky. Now clouds give the sky definition. If there's no clouds, there's just this vast clearness of blue. I'm not sure if you have, seen this in England for a while, yeah. but that's what happens when there's no clouds. <laughs> <Just Yeah. laughs> We're not known for it over here, but uh, yeah, yeah, from time yeah. to time. Yeah. So I'm looking out across the whole of uh, this beautiful skyline in the city. And today we've had a cloudless sky. So the whole sky has just been, it's been featureless. Yeah. Okay. Now as humans, we don't like to be featureless. We like to be a feature. We like to be an identity. We like to be a story. We like to be a persona. So the other analogy is, so, so that's the cloud that has texture, it has shape, it has form, and it has temporary nature because it's always changing and it won't be permanent. Whereas the sky is just the sky. Whether there's clouds in it or not, it's unmoved, unaffected, and unchanged. Okay, and that's our true self. That's our higher nature. That's our egolessness. Then the other analogy is the wave. So the wave is an expression of the ocean. It's not the ocean. Okay, the ocean is the ocean. And whether there's a wave there or not, the ocean's just the ocean. So the wave is the ego that temporarily takes some form of identity, but the wave gets so trapped in its identity as the wave, it forgets that it's actually the ocean. And what we need to start doing as a species, we start to near, really identify and experience our oceanic status. Yeah. Because the thing is, when we experience our oceanic status through the transcendence in meditation, we start to realize that all waves are the ocean and I am the ocean, therefore all waves are me. And everything changes in your relationship with the world, not just other humans, but trees, plants, and bees. 
that you are them, you are that, and therefore you've got a responsibility as an extension of you to support and elevate that whole. But I mean, on, on the one hand, I mean, from very practical terms, there's, um, you know, we hear things, uh, we hear activists saying, um, you know, no one is safe until everyone is safe, for example. It's a, it's a good phrase for, um, for the peace movement. And it's that kind of thing, understanding that we're all part of a, a broader connected whole and that we have a responsibility to live a, a kind of virtuous and, and righteous life, if you like, because of our, our brothers and sisters around the world and the, for the state of the planet. But we're, we're kind of hobbled a little bit by nationalism, by, by um, international trade, borders, um, all of these kind of things that kind of create these mental barriers between us and our, our brothers. We're, we're, we're divided. You know, we're, we're, we're only hobbled by one thing, and that's our ego. We're hobbled but, by the idea that my needs need to be met. Yeah. And that can be a, an individual, singularized personal needs, or it can be a country's individualized collective ego, or it can be a sports team's individual collective ego. Um, when I say individual, I'm just saying individual against other teams, but the collective of 12 players, their own ego and their pursuits to win. So what, what happens is that that overriding need for the ego to be the victor, to have its needs met, to have desires fulfilled, will, will override any innate uh, capacities or tendencies to consider the whole. Yeah. So until we start reducing the influence and the dominance of our own individual egos, we won't get a different uh, planet. We, we, and that's what will most likely lead to self-extinction. I mean, that's a, that's a hard sell. I mean, you've got, looking at your own life, you've got a kind of um, you on the trading room floor. And that's almost like a metaphor for the world as it is today. You mm. know, it's all about sell, sell, have fun, consume. But then there's the, the kind of current you, which is more about kind of, there's no sense of like, there's no hole to fill. It's all about radiating light and guiding one another and being the best you can be for you, the planet and each other. But it, how are you going to do it? I mean, you, you have the stillness project, which is about bringing kind of meditation and stillness to a billion people. Is it, is it realistic? Can you, can it's you already happening. It, you know, we, we, let's, let's just break things down on a macro level. Okay. So enlightenment, egolessness, meditation, daily practices was the domain for up to 10,000 years of a very, very minute select handful of people that were so incongruent with the collective, with the, the mainstream population, that they could not interact, they could not integrate in any way, shape or form. So what they did was they removed those practices and those teachings and those ideologies and those energetic states that they were in, those states of consciousness, and they removed themselves so far from the collective masses to the mountaintops of Tibet, India, Pakistan, Spain, Italy, and you'll find any monastery or ashram to be incredibly remote and far away from the collective, right? And that's the way it was for thousands of years and literally until just 25 years ago. And what we saw just within the last, I would say five years, five years out of 10,000 years, we have Zoom calls and podcasts and apps where the proliferation of that knowledge as it came out of the mountains and started to spread like wildfire as people started to go, oh my goodness, 
I thought fulfillment was in the shopping mall. I thought it was drinking a pint of lager. I thought it was getting a line of cocaine. I thought it was making more money. I thought it was having more Bitcoin, but I've exhausted that. I can't find fulfillment there. I'm miserable as all heck. And all of a sudden there's an app that I can learn to meditate on. And we've got apps out there where they teach meditation with a hundred million people using them today. So if we look at that curve, then 10,000 years, 10,000 years, 10,000 years, and then we look at the last five. And we look at that exponential level of growth. Where are we in 15 years time? Yeah. So it's already happening. It's already happening. So, I mean, it sounds like you're talking about a spiritual revolution, um, uh, which um, I, I know we're seeing kind of advancements in clean technologies, clean energy, clean mobility, and that kind of thing. I mean, do you think this has just been waiting until we've progressed um, technologically? for it to be able to happen yeah yeah the technology is an extension of our consciousness shape shape changing shape well it's not really consciousness changing shape but it's it's it they're intertwined there's an intertwining of being ready and having the tools and the capacity to bring this out into the world rapidly it's almost like now the big question is will we will we have will will it happen quick enough to stave off self-termination that's that's the unknown and we're kind of at it's like 22 all with three minutes to go. No one's leaving the stadium because this is going to be an absolute cracker last three minutes of the game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? And, and you talk about, you know, you went through your nervous breakdown and you discovered yeah. meditation that way. I think, you know, loads of people talk about um, how, you know, coming like a phoenix out of the fire. Um, Carl Jung talks about, you know, no, no evolutionary change is possible without pain. Are we going? Are we now starting to finally reach a kind of humanity's um, big, big pain point where, in all of this kind of seeking for a way out, suddenly people are going to say, "Well, hang on a minute. We've had it for five thousand years, and now I've got an app that does it. This is the way forward." Is this, is we this very rarely change it. Pain is one of the greatest mechanisms or devices that the universe created in some form of intelligence system to impel us to change and adapt okay very rarely will we change and adapt unless there's immense levels of pain very rarely um it's a it's a fascinating tool for for change and we don't necessarily need extreme levels of pain darkness suffering and turmoil to be the catalyst for change we can be much more adaptable and evolutionary without that it's just very rare and so what they have in this in in vedic philosophy is a deep which is what i've been studying for 25 years is what they have this 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 terminology around the mechanics of change and evolution is an undeniable process that must unfold and will unfold unquestionably but if there's some preventative blockage that's standing in the way of that evolutionary process then what happens is these these messages these these uh these impulses start coming through okay this natural law of impulse just comes through to try and nudge you out of that that status quo that stuckness and so if we ignore that impetus that's coming through which will be some level of turbulence or pain or suffering then what happens is it doesn't go away it doesn't give up on you it's just like hey wow we've got a stubborn one here and it just ramps up the volume and so what eventually happens is that it, it un, unravels into what's called a rashi, which is a crisis moment. And a crisis moment is a, a, literally a fork in the road that makes the next step in the process undeniable for change. 
So you can go on resisting change, resisting change, doing the same thing and make things really uncomfortable. But eventually you're going to get to a point if you resist it for too long, you're going to get to a fork in the road where it's only one of two things, breakdown or breakthrough. And that's a relationship goes into divorce or they go to the next level. A company goes into bankruptcy, they go to the next level. A civilization breaks down like Easter Island, they go into, you know, or mains or whatever, they, they, they self-combust or they evolve to the next level. So we're looking at our own collective fork in the road very soon. I had my own rash at 29. So that was my breakdown or breakthrough moment. And many of us have been through them, either relationship or business or an individual level. And so it's not like it's a problem. It's just part of evolution. Yep. Okay. And so it's a matter of, can we be adaptable before the crisis moment, be intuitive enough to adapt and evolve, adapt and evolve without these major crises. And so that's what happens over time as we become more conscious, more aware, more adaptable. We, we have less and less of those chaotic moments in our lives. So if we've got a lot of chaos in our life, it means that we're simply not adapting. We're not evolving. We're not tuning in to that subtle message that's coming through saying up level, up level, up level, because that's what evolution is. That's interesting. I, I had a conversation with Jason Garner, who is a, um, a former a music industry exec in America, a very uh, successful man. And, uh, and then he went on a similar journey, ended up becoming a kind of full-time meditator, if you like. And he was saying life talks to you and it starts off as a whisper, but ultimately it ends up as a, a kind of smack around the, the head um, until you take action. And the problem I, I kind of see is that um, there was a tweet the other day that went a little bit viral. There's, there was a politician in America and uh, he ended up with diabetes and um, he was put on insulin, but he realized that the insulin was uh, massively expensive. So he um, decided that it was time for a policy change and to cap the price of insulin. But it was only when it, it happened to him personally that he was able to or willing to make that, that change. It's almost like he was, he was unaware um, that people were going through this every day. You know, as a collective, uh, we are so unaware of the struggles unless we face them personally. You know, we, we see it on TV, we see the flooding, we see the, the fires in Australia, we see the fires in California, Siberia, we see, we see people living in poverty, we see people, um, you know, starving to death. But until it actually happens to us, we're not in a, or we don't feel motivated to make the relevant changes to our lifestyle in order to, you know, for the greater good. Does it have to come down to a, a personal Rashi? Or can it be a collective Rashi? very difficult for it to happen without the personal because the personal yeah. is the collective yeah um as a collective species we could adapt very quickly um however there's such a proliferation of ego on the planet still that um the the turmoil that we're currently in as a planet is only a function of um being lacking in adaptability yeah and being impelled to make change with in a state of choicelessness you get rendered choiceless by evolution it's quite a fascinating thing when you start to see this play out it's like oh i get it i get it um i still get i still get you know impulses from the universe when i'm being a dickhead and not doing you know and the universe is aligning me it's just like ouch that was hurt that hurt why did you give me oh i know why you gave me that slap thank you you know so you know the process doesn't end it just gets subtler and get more tuned into the message and more adaptable to stave off some of the bigger sort of pain points. 
there's a theme that's come up in many conversations that I've had is this whole idea of an evolutionary mismatch in that we're, we are animals evolving, but it takes millions of years to evolve. Um, but society is evolving much quicker. So, you know, we, and we can't keep up as, as the kind of human animal. And that's why we're, we're struggling, um, you know, to, to kind of balance our kind of spiritual consciousness, if you like, with the, you know, the trading room floor and the, the shiny things and the new technology and the, you know, and all of these kind of things that lead us down, lead us astray, if you like, and distract us from our, our true nature. Um, so let's move on, because I know time is, is uh, moving against us a little bit. Let's move on to the stillness project. So where, where did this come from? So you had your own kind of epiphany, if you like. Where did the, the stillness project come from? Well, I could say that my life was not changing in any way, shape or form, just getting worse until I started meditating. And when I started meditating, because it's, we've got to really understand what, what happens when we go into these deeper states of meditation. A lot of the apps out there just aren't getting the people into that deeper state of transcendence. We call it Turiya in Sanskrit, the fourth state, where you've gone beyond the thinking mind, beyond your physical body, beyond your emotional body, beyond your identity. It really is a complete and utter surrendering into the unbounded field of awareness. And as I started to dive more and more into that space, I started to, started to, to be much more proactive about creating a better life becoming a better person and i could see that it was integral in my choices i made the way i lived my life and the people that i was affecting and therefore i could see time and time as i referred other people to this practice that the same thing was happening in them and i started to see this on a macro level that if we really wanted to bring about change in the world we've got to shift states of mind we've got to have less ego we've got to expand consciousness it's nothing's going to change if we're trying to fix the world and solve this solution solve the problems and have solutions to the problems with the same state of mind that's creating the problems it's just madness as einstein says so we've really got to get into the, the minds of the people if we wanted to change the planet because the people are the ones creating the problems on the planet and so the stillness project was born out of this idea that the best thing i could do to bring about change in the world was actually just to get people meditating that's all it comes down to after that, after they start meditating, then they go and create new systems, new programs, be more creative. And then they start to do things that makes the world a better place, but not until then. I mean, it doesn't mean there aren't people doing great things in the planet that aren't meditators, because there's a lot of people doing great things that aren't meditators. But I just found on the whole, when people meditated regularly, they just simply became better people and created better systems and better things in the world. Do you think... Um that it has to be a kind of formalized meditation do you think because i've spoken to some close friends of mine and they kind of go meditation ugh, don't be don't be daft but they'll go and run 10 miles and get into kind of deep um states uh, of kind of kind of conscious awareness they're just kind of connected to their breathing and the rhythm of their body and they, they kind of transcend thought a little bit do you think it's it's just about that kind of formal kind of spiritual sitting quietly and meditating, or we can promote it in other ways of, and other activities and that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I never, I think, I think it's important. We don't discredit any practice or any, you know, tradition, anything that's adding value to our lives. I think it's certainly, um, you know, my mum used to say she'd meditate on a lawnmower, you know, she did with yeah. this big massive three acres of gardens and she had this right on lawnmower and she just said it, she kind of zoned out. Look, there's, there's activities that can help us get into what I call flow state or zones. 
but then there's stillness and silence and they're very, very different states. And you can't do that when you're swimming, when you're running, when you're dancing, when you're mowing lawns. You are aware of your own individual experience and your own individual state. You're aware of your body, you're in your body, even yoga classes. You know, yoga classes, you're listening to the teacher the whole time. You're aware of your mat, you're aware of the room, you're aware of the heat in the room, you're aware of the music. You're in a duality of, of being. You're the you, the subject and the object that you're engaging in. You, there's no question about that, no matter how much flow state you're in, you're still in the duality of me, the subject and the object of my own experience that I'm engaging in. That duality is, is, it's a beautiful play. It's the dance. We call it Leela, the dance of the divine. But to experience the, as well as that, the non-dual state of just presence, awareness, being God, the divine source, higher self, whatever you want to call it, until we experience that on a regular transcendent state of meditation, we're always going to be deficient of what truth is. We're always going to be lacking in the absolute ab fundamental reality of what is 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 absolute reality so there's unmanifest and manifest and and that that's the the we call it brahman in sanskrit the totality is those two things coming together the unmanifest being experienced within the manifest that's the world of duality so non-dual and dual being experienced has to happen through a transcendent state of meditation do you think i mean i hope i, I haven't lost anyone there i've only had um I sort of meditate regularly. I went through a period of meditating every day. Um, and I've only had profound experiences once or twice, possibly because I don't spend enough time doing it, that, that kind of thing. But I, I know there is something quite, um, quite significant when you can get into those deep and silent states. Uh, is that a connection with, you, you talk about the wave and the ocean. Is it a, a connection to our kind of source, a connection to the universe, if you like, and our, our place in it? Is that what is that what we're discovering when we get still? Yeah, I'd, I'd say less of a connection because you are already it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a letting go of the thing that's not it. Yeah. Okay, it's a letting go of the thing that's not it and realizing that I am already that. And so it's the, ah, oh, that's, truth that's unboundedness that's my amness not even my amness that's just amness there's no i and so coming back to the one or two experiences it comes down to malcolm gladwell's ten thousand hours that an enlightened being the only difference between someone that's having a state of enlightenment on a 24 7 basis and the person that's not there's only one difference just the allocation of time to have that experience We've just become really good at having babies, really good at paying off mortgages, really good at Instagram, really good at crosswords, really good at trading shares, really good at driving cars. Some people just got better at meditating and not better at meditating, but allocated more time to that experience. And that's just a preference. There's nothing right or wrong. It's just a preference of time allocation. Yeah. And then, but it's also, you know, our awareness is being commoditized i think to a certain degree 100 yeah of yeah you know it's it's our, our attention is is valuable and um probably the most valuable thing we have and, and everyone wants a, a slice of that it's very easy to give that give that away um but think that quote, said, just wait on that uh, so you go with tinahan and i'll give you the quote from the head of netflix oh, well, <laughs> two well, very he, different quotes well he said um the way out is in Right. Which, okay. which when I when I started meditating and I saw the impact it had on on the world around me and on my circumstances, I suddenly realized, yeah, this is quite, you know, I, I've been chipping away at the coal face uh, for years and I'm, I'm getting nowhere. But as soon as I look inwards, suddenly the coal face just falls apart and my world is transformed. And, and it, that really resonated with me. And I think that's what you were saying. But uh, 
so what's the quote from the head of Netflix? What does he um He said at their um annual annual general meeting that they have three competitors in yeah. their business, Facebook, YouTube, and sleep. And yeah. that's the commoditization of uh, you know, people's attention. You know, um Netflix have commoditized very well people's attention. And they're competing with sleep, they're competing with Facebook, they're competing with YouTube. So if that means people having less sleep so they can make more money, then that's what they'll do. Which is grossly harmful, really, when sleep is one of the most- but That's why the world's where it is, because yeah. all nearly all apps and nearly all, well, really every, every app, every platform, every TV channel is literally vying for people's attention. And the longer they have it, the better it is. So they use whatever tactics they can to get the people's attention. What's fascinating is that these these apps and these platforms are kind of platforms to change because they are delivering the message of meditation, if you like. You know, I've this got is my, the irony, the polarity in them, yeah. Yeah, the absolutely. And it's it's just it's like there's a wrestling match going on between those who want to want to grab our attention for their own, you know, profit margins and those who want us to harness the power of our attention for ourselves so that we can use it to better ourselves and better our circumstances and better our lives. Yeah. You know? We all face um, that dilemma. I mean, my film's fine for people's attention. You know, I want people to watch my film. You know, I want the world to watch my film. So my question is always, how do I get in front of people? And that, yeah. that's always a conundrum for me, you know. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, that's the thing. Anyone with a message, how do we share that's this right, message? Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and maybe we're focusing on that lack again. Maybe, you know, we need to kind of just live the message rather than try and, and feel like we're, we're kind of lacking in some way when it's not reaching enough people, but. Uh, yeah. I um, think the thing is that we've, all our businesses need to be focused on in some way, shape or form at the, at the very, at the very subtle um, starting point of each business, it has to be for the wellness of humanity and the planet. Yeah. Con like conscious capitalism almost. Um, yeah. But talking about your film, um, one of the things, and it was something I mentioned, a quote that I mentioned um, before uh, we started talking, as, as soon as I heard about your film, um, The Portal, it really reminded me of this quote by Blaise Pascal, and I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing because I'm not very good at memorizing these things word for word, but he said, all of mankind's problems uh, come as a result of his inability to sit quietly alone in a room. And that's what, that was the premise of this film, isn't it? It's like all the crises we're facing now in the world are man-made and pretty much as a result of ego. So could you, could you give us a little bit more info about the film and the, the accompanying book and, and that kind of thing? Mm. Yeah, I, with the Stillness Project, the message was to inspire people to meditate daily. So there's two parts to that. One is inspire them to meditate and then give them the opportunity to meditate, to go within, to give them the techniques. And those techniques were very unattainable and very unaccessible for most people. You know, there was some mind mindfulness apps out there, but nothing was really giving people the, the accessibility to a deep meditation program that I'd learned, which was very expensive and you couldn't get it digitally. You could only learn it with a teacher in person. So giving them direct access to that particular program was really important to me on a global level. And so we felt that a film and a book was the great inspiration to start doing that. And that was the sort of a, a, a sort of conscious media to inspire people into action, that action being meditation. So that was the starting point of the film and the book. And then we had to find stories that had had crisis 
So we looked at individual crisis and collective crisis. We look at the individual, we have six stories that have gone through their own personal crisis and evolved through that crisis, be liberated from that crisis and live in a world where they don't have the same level of crises or crises and meditation played an integral role in that for them. And then we look at the global uh, dilemma that we're facing on so many different levels. We're looking at a, at least four to five different crisis points, crisis, crises points that are all potentially self-terminating for humanity. And that can be anything from AI to environmental to um, nuclear to all sorts of things, food shortages. There's a number of different touch points that could really say one or all of them could lead to an extinction of a species. Um, and we're so blinkered by our own personal pursuits that we just can't see that, which is why it's self-terminating. Um, we're slowly starting to wake up to this. So we wanted to cover those macro themes as well as those micro themes and realize that this is all a function of consciousness or lack thereof and meditation being one of the key components. This ancient five to 7,000 year old process of sitting in stillness was so simple and so powerful that um, that's really what we want to make a film and book about. I mean, it's a very powerful uh, uh, film, what I've seen of it so far, and, and a very powerful book as well, because it brings together your journey as well. And also the journey of, um, you know, there's there's a, a, a army veteran who's uh, been through PTSD. There, you've got a, a whole host of experts um, talking about these things. Is there a danger that we will, we can turn to meditation and we start meditating daily and we have these profound experiences and we kind of, and when everything kind of bursts into flames, we kind of say, well, I, I was meditating, I, I've done my bit, you know, what, what more do you want, you know? If we're meditating more, we're shopping less. That's going to be yeah. good for the planet. Yeah. Uh, look, for sure. Um, there's, there's, it's not like, oh, Tom's got the solution. This is what we should do. I have no idea. You know, I'm just, yeah. I just think that my life just got better. And I think I started consuming less and I didn't become perfect. I still have many, many things that I've got to work on myself and try and be still a better person. I think we don't become perfect. We just keep hopefully getting better and learning and adapting. But this is, this is like, you know, millenniums of a process unfolding ahead of us. And the big question is, do we want to be here for those millenniums for our children and grandchildren? There has to be a new status quo, a new way of doing things definitively. Uh, you know, you know, definitively the next hundred years are looking very, very sketchy if we don't make some serious changes right now. And um, I think having less time consuming and maybe a bit more meditating is not a bad thing right now. Yeah, I, I agree that there's an old phrase that um, a, a catchphrase that was about, I don't know, in the, in the 1980s or whatever, and it's, it's uh, bombs are dropping while you're shopping. You know, and it's, uh, you know, this whole consumerist thing, it's, it's keeping us distracted from just how divine and, and spiritual we are and our, and our capacity to do good and wonderful and amazing things. You know, there, there are people out there who are changing the world, literally finding cures for terrible diseases and advancing us into, you know, in, into, into space and doing fantastic things but there are also a lot of people out there keeping us divided and and seeking our attention and and you know wanting our, our money and our our eyeballs if you like and it's it's kind of saying well where who do we want to which side do we want to be on in this in this battle is it is it about being on the side for kind of a, a good and healthy future 
or is it about instant gratification? I suppose it's it's like eating. It's like the McDonald's arches you were talking about at the beginning. It's like you know, do we, do we want a quick hit of a a burger, or do we want to kind of you know see have a healthy future for all of of the planet and humanity? You know, it's a very difficult um, argument, really. But uh, the way forward seems pretty obvious. So. It can be overwhelming for a lot of people. I remember walking out of inconvenient truth and felt just a hopelessness i felt a real sense of hopelessness that me changing my light bulbs to be you know uh more environmentally friendly and putting out my garbage into plastic recycling bins was just like scratching at the surface i just felt like i was not really making that much difference and i felt a sense of hopelessness about that not that there was anything wrong with the film but it did inspire me in some way but I think for a lot of people, there's this this weight of the world and this this it's too much, right? And so what's the point? And I think it comes down to something really simple. If you're ever feeling that way, anyone listening, if you feel a sense of hopelessness, I, I like it to really dumb it down into, not even dumb it down, to simplify it to such a level is, can I leave the world in a better place or will I leave the world in a worse place? Yeah. Um, and, you know, if it's meaning helping a lady across the road or, you know, going to a dog refuge and saving the dog or something. I don't know. It's just so many different ways that it can be sourced. You know, for me, I when I had this such limited capacity to make a difference in the world, but I wanted to make some difference in the world, what I would do was I would buy, you can buy tube stock, right? Trees in tube yeah. stock, which is like a dollar. It's about this big, little seedlings. And I bought, you know, I'd go and buy like 20, 30 gum trees that as seedlings, you know, it cost me 30 bucks. And I would grow them in these pots till they were like three foot tall. And then I'd go around the streets of Sydney, don't tell anyone this, all right, because it was probably not kosher and the right thing to do. But I would go around and I would start planting these trees in places. Um, and I drive around the streets now and I see these like 50, this was like, you know, going back 20 years ago. And these huge gum trees now and these beautiful streets and and i'm like you know i contributed in to that street being yeah. more tree lined and i wouldn't do it in front of someone's personal house but in places that it wouldn't obviously intrude on people and stuff like that but you know it's just that was my capacity and then after that i kind of outgrew that and i had more capacity so i worked in a soup kitchen every saturday morning when i was a broker um, that was the best contribution i could make at that point i had a bit of overflow a tiny little bit of overflow out of my cup that I was able to share. Um, my cup was no longer empty, it was overflowing, but there wasn't much overflow. So at that point, it was, I'm gonna work in a soup kitchen and just pour coffee yeah. and tea. And that was nourishing. And after a year of that, I did that for 12 months while I was working as a broker. Every Saturday morning, I go up there, sit down with the locals and talk to the homeless kids and people. And after that, I was the next thing. And it was just, I had a bit more overflow. And so I started to find ways to give more in that way. And these days, you know, obviously I have a greater overflow and I've got greater capacity to give more. So I get invited to speak at world conferences and I'm working with Amazon, teaching their stuff to meditate and have coaching clients around the world. So it, it, you overflow what you give will just be determined by your capacity at that point in time. And there's no right or wrong or better or worse. So it's almost like saying, you know, what, what, what good have I done today? Even if it's something like, like you say, helping an old lady across the road or planting one tree or you know, even the smallest things when everyone does it, it kind of, spirals outwards and, and ripples outwards in a way um, and i just want to just 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 finish on that is because i don't want people to feel like they have to go out and do something physical it could be simply what state are you in yeah you know your vibration your 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 energetic state is the greatest contribution to the world if we have seven billion people tomorrow enjoy most of those problems are gone 
Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that, that comes back to awareness as well. And, it, and being aware of how is social media, for example, making us feel, how is that, what's that doing to our state? What, what are our, you know, what, what is that drink that I had last night doing to my state? What is all this junk food doing to my state? You know, and, an understanding that all of this is connected. So when we start to look after ourselves and what we consume, both information and, um, you know, and, and our diet as well, that it affects our state, which ripples again, ripples outwards. You know, when, when you're, when you're in a good state, it influences the people around you. And, you know, like, like you say, it's like once you find your light, you, you want to shine it for everyone else. Um, so in terms of the stillness project and um, the portal, where can people find out about, uh, you know, where can people watch the portal? Where can people find out about the Stillness Project? Um, they can go to, for the portal, enter the portal, E-N-T-E-R, enterthepodal.com. That's the best place they can watch the film, watch, uh, buy the book, gift the film, become a partner. We have a partner model where people can register as partners um, and we'll share the revenue with them. They can get our meditation programs there. To find everything else, like my retreats, my coaching, Stillness Project, two places is either Tom Cronin Stillness, uh, Tom Cronin Instagram, or TomCronin.com on my uh, website. Fantastic, and I'll put all of these links in oh, well, everywhere in all the show notes <laughs> and everything like that as well. Um, well, thank you so much for that. I, I'm really going to kind of reinvest in my meditation practice. I think because there is yeah, wonderful. There is so much more to be gained from just life in general when we can. I sit quietly with ourselves and at least listen a little bit to what's going on below our ego. So yeah, uh, yeah, I love it. I'm, I'm well, so that's uh, just nine hundred ninety-nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine, whatever less. Yeah, <laughs> one less now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so nearly there. Nearly there. Not far to go now. A bit, bit more. Yeah. Well, well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate Pleasure. it and um, very inspiring. I'm, I'm very grateful. So no, it's great to be on here. And thanks for such poignant and uh, wonderful questioning. Thank you. So there you are. That was the amazing Tom Cronin. You can find out more about him and all his work, uh, the Stillness Project, um, the portal, uh, all in the show notes. Um, so check out those links and join the conversation at Conversations on Living, the Facebook group, uh, and uh, share, share your thoughts on this. I think it was Ram Das who said, the quieter we become, the more we can hear. And if there's anything this world needs, it's certainly a lot more listening to each other and to ourselves and to the planet, which is crying out at the moment for help and support. So there you go, plenty to think about and plenty that we can do in our own lives to start to make a difference. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. There's plenty more to come. Next episode is with Andy Mort, and we're going to be talking all about attachment, detachment, and non-attachment. So uh, stay tuned for that, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And in the meantime, have a wonderful day.